Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Maya Gombashara, early stage purpose-driven investor and advisor, and somebody that I had the fortunate chance to meet and share the stage back in London recently. So welcome to the show, and it's great to chat with you again, Maya. Thank you so much for having me, Theo. I'm thrilled to be here. I am super excited because I felt like last time when we talked, I didn't quite have enough time. And so now we actually have the opportunity to do one-on-one. Um, we can actually get to learn to learn more about you and um, we can share your experience with our audience as well. You have a really, really, really interesting journey um, that has taken you around the world and also experience from private sector to philanthropy and now to what you're doing, which is terribly exciting and important. So for our listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of meeting you, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what are you doing now? Oh, great question. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'll take a couple of steps back there just kind of to paint the bigger picture of my journey so far. Um, so by background, I'm Lebanese Brazilian, um, but I was born in the U.S. actually in Greenville, South Carolina because my dad happened to be working there at the time. Um, I was there until I was about two. And then I moved to France. And I spent, I'd say, my early years growing up in France. Then I moved to Japan. I spent like middle school, well, I say later elementary, middle school in Japan, then moved back to France for high school, and then to the US for college. So in some ways, I kind of boomeranged my way back to the US um, for college. But essentially, my whole life, um, I really knew I wanted to work in social impact in purpose-driven work. It was just a, it was a known for me from a very early age, but I couldn't quite figure out what specifically I wanted to focus on or kind of how to further define that. And I think that for a very long time, social impact was reduced to, you know, pro bono work that you do at the side, on the side, or maybe, you know, charitable work you save for much later in your career. But at least in my opinion, there hasn't really been up until very recently, this like really robust intersection of purpose and profit within thriving careers. And I think that's changing now. But back when I was starting out, I don't think that that existed. And so I was like, you know what? I don't know how to really bring these two together in a meaningful way. In the absence of figuring that out, let me just be a generalist. Let me build as many like broad skills and tools as I can so that once I figure out what I want to do with my life, I can hopefully be a generally useful human in that space, which remains my aspiration. That has really been my kind of guiding light. Um, up until this point. And so what that meant for me was studying industrial engineering in undergrad back when I went to, to college in the U.S. And then I worked at McKinsey for a couple of years. I was in the New York office on uh, management consulting, spent two years working on a wonderfully random and very kind of instructive array of private sector clients. I did some work in animal health and paper packaging and mortgage insurance and you know, doing due diligence for private equity firms. I mean, it was it was <laughs> the whole gamut. And I think in many ways, Theo, honestly, I saw McKinsey as my continued education. It was an incredible, um, incredibly, it's a instructive time for my for me. And then something really divine happened, which is that while I was at McKinsey, they decided to formalize a social sector practice and to actually build, you know, a path to partner and formalize work around serving exclusively social sector clients. Think, you know, the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller, for example, as well as global NGOs like UNICEF and different UN agencies. And so I had the amazing opportunity to join that uh, practice in their inaugural class and essentially start to manage teams working with social sector clients all over the world. So got to do some work in public health, 
got to do some work in early childhood education. It was an incredible time. Um, I got to a point though, Theo, where, you know, in the spirit of really honoring that generalist aspiration I had, felt like I wanted to get more operational experience, wanted to really roll up my sleeves, learn about execution, was hungry for more of the kind of execution of strategy work as opposed to just the strategy development. And I think so much of what you learn about whether a strategy is effective in the first place is through the implementation, the change management, right, the iteration, the refinement. So I was hungry for that. Um, and so I ended up um, by another amazing synchronicity joining the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative right when they were starting out as they um, were about 30 people at the time. This is like January 2017. I make it sound really seamless, but um, it was like nine months of me chasing the Chance Zuckerberg Initiative until something finally worked out. Happy to share more about that. Um, but essentially finally joined Dream Come True, moved back to California um, and then spent the next five years helping build out the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in a range of roles, spent a year in operations, literally building the kind of operational backbone of the organization, you know, finding us facilities, um, setting up our recruiting and HR processes, like onboarding people onto the team. Um, I had to convince people to use Slack. That was like a very kind of big project I had because at the time it was a very kind of confusing and controversial tool. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. And then I moved into other roles over the course of my five years, ending up um, helping really uh, lead and co-lead the education team, which is essentially, uh, you know, a combination of different initiatives, including building out an ed tech platform that's in thousands of schools in the U.S. today. What's really amazing about CZI, I think, for those out there who haven't had the chance to learn about their work, is that it is, of course, a philanthropy, but it's really this uh, geared towards this notion of figuring out how to harness the power of world-class tech towards the biggest social problems of today. So trying to figure out, okay, if we could actually build technology, develop products to solve some of the biggest issues in education and science and immigration and criminal justice and housing, you know, what kind of change could we really catalyze? And so CZI was an amazing combination of product development, your kind of traditional grant making, a little bit of venture and some other work that was quite, quite unique. Um, and so I ended up leaving that uh, about a year ago to do two things. I wanted to do more global work and I wanted to work in mental health. And that kind of leads me to the kind of funky existence that I live today, which is moving to London from California and essentially trying to answer the following question, like how can I be as impactful as I can be um, in the mental health space? That's really my North Star. Um, what has inspired that for me, Theo, has been kind of a range of different lived experiences that have led mental health to be front of mind for me for a long time. And I think what I realized during COVID, like many of us, was that it created this kind of collective awakening for us to become more aware of the existence of mental health, um, as well as its importance. And so I think this next decade or two is going to be paradigm shifting, wanted to get involved, um, and so decided to leave CZI, move to London, and figure out how to be helpful. Um, and I'm essentially trying to answer that question by having a very plural portfolio, uh, which includes a third of my time spent purpose-driven early stage investing and advising. So working with super early stage companies and um, really helping them at the kind of pre-seed seed stage with um, getting them to the next level of growth, having them really maximize their impact. I spent a third of my time consulting with bigger firms and a third of my time on exclusively the nonprofit side, especially here in the Middle East. Um, and so that's really how I'm spending my time today. And, and I think something I'll say at the very end is, um, as we wrap up is like, 
I'm very much a purpose-driven investor. I see 60% of what I do or 40 to 60% is in the health, mental health space. But I do a lot of work outside of that, especially in wealth tech, which I know is something you and I have chatted a lot about. How do you bring more women into investing? How do you bring more underrepresented groups like, let's say, U.S. Hispanics into investing? You know, they're largely overlooked by a lot of the, the fintech super apps out there. So I'll stop there. Um, but that's essentially where I am today. Can I just say, I am super jealous, multiple things. First, of being, being mobile, being able to, to actually live and experience different culture, different countries, um, different ways of life. I, I think it's, it's incredible. Um, it, it's the worldview that enriches us in so many ways. And second, um, being able to, to work in, in nonprofits and social impacting organizations, I, absolutely agree it is it can be eye-opening and life-changing um in in many ways and it's you you already the whole package and i remember we talked about that before but it's just fascinating inspiring and and all of that i i do want to touch on something though towards the end that you just talked about um angel investing looking for early stage yeah. investing and, and advising for those who are curious and perhaps, you know, someone who wants to get involved and how do we get started? What should they do? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that question. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, and thank you also for your generous words, Theo. You inspire many, many of us. So I'm especially flattered that coming from you. Um, I'd say on the angel investing front, that's a great question. I would, before we dive in, I think I just want to like demystify a few things about angel investing that I've found are commonly misunderstood. So I think the first thing about angel investing is that angel investing is for everyone. You know, I think there is this um, myth that angel investing is only for people who have a significant amount of savings or of disposable income. But today there are a lot of tools that enable you to angel invest with $5. Um, and so I really would love for anybody listening to this to really just keep that in the back of their mind. It is something available to any of us that are willing to, to spend $5 or willing to kind of explore this in some capacity. I think the second thing about angel investing is that you don't need to have an investing background to do it. I think that it is something that, you know, especially in the early days of companies, which is when angel investing is mostly relevant, um, a lot of the work is not necessarily about um, big business building, you know, digging through financial statements because there's very little data to work from. A lot of it is about thought partnership, first principles, problem solving, creative thinking, really supporting founders with some of their foundational operational questions, hiring, um, figuring out the right marketing strategy. Um, so I think that's just another thing I wanted to mention. But as it relates to angel investing, I think for those of us who are listening to this and they're like, hey, well, actually, that is something that I could be curious to learn more about. I would say the first thing would be to really sit back and check in with like, what are your objectives for angel investing? Is it that you want to have a significant return? Is it that you want to learn? Is it that you want to drive impact? Is it that you think it could be a great way for you to gauge the next Revolut and figure out which company to join yourself? Um, you know, what are your goals specifically? Because I think that that would, that's really going to impact how you think about some of the other follow-on questions that I put out there. So for example, my initial goals with angel investing 
back in the day, and this is several years ago, it was really to back phenomenal founders, female founders in my network who were leaving, say, McKinsey or CZI to start businesses and who I believed in fully. Um, and I really wanted to back them. I really believed in them. And for me, the angel investment was a way to be part of their journey um, and to contribute to kind of bolstering their journey. I think more recently when I moved to London and started to really kind of take my angel investing to the next level, it was really as an opportunity to learn and drive impact in an applied way. Um, somebody, uh, Lisa Freya, had shared this kind of mental model with me that really resonated, which was thinking of angel investing almost as like a mini MBA for those of us who haven't gotten one or who want an additional one, I haven't gotten an MBA. And the way that I thought about it was like, okay, this is money I can invest in applied learning and that I might not see ever again, right? That is a real risk, but that ultimately I really wanna see as an investment in learning and impact. So that was my motivation. For others, it might be different. It might be really that outsized financial return. So I'd say, you know, figure out what your goals are. I'd say the second thing is figure out what you care about. Um, figure out, you know, are you somebody who gets really excited about health? Is it about the financial systems? Is it about climate? Um, I'd say pick maybe to start with two areas, one or two areas that really put a fire under your belly that are going to spark that curiosity. And that's going to help focus your angel investing. Because without that, I think it can be an incredibly overwhelming endeavor. There are lots of amazing businesses getting started every day. The third thing I'd say is um, figure out how much you're willing to spend. Give yourself a budget early because once you get into this, there are so many inspiring humans you're going to meet. It's going to be really, really tempting to want to just keep investing, but it's important to just be thoughtful about kind of setting that boundary with yourself from the beginning. I think the next thing I'd say is try to figure out um, what your superpowers are. And before you think about, oh, well, I actually know I don't really have anything to offer to a founder, to an angel investor, I really challenge that and I disagree with that. I think every single one of us has a lot of value to add. It's about just trying to reflect back on what are we doing currently? What have we done professionally and personally that might be valuable to an early stage founder, whether that's, you know, marketing, whether that's figuring out how to do procurement. Um, there are a lot of things that we all have had some exposure to or that we might have some depth in that is absolutely valuable. Whether you are a recruiter, whether you are an IT specialist, I assure you, um, it's really worth just thinking about that because it's going to be an important part of your story as an angel investor. Um, the next thing I'd say is, so I think those are just some first steps. And then I would say just like learn as much as possible, absorb, soak in. You know, you can do things like join angel investor communities. A lot of them are free and quite open out there. You could talk to angel investor friends. Back when I started, I literally just looked on LinkedIn, looked up angel on LinkedIn in my network and just cold outreach people from college and high school I'd spoken to in years just to kind of pick their brains. So definitely talk to angels. The other thing I'll, I'll say, which I think is often overlooked, is talk to founders. Talk to founders in your network and ask them about angel investing. Ask them what makes a valuable angel investor, what makes a successful angel investor, because um, it's really about a relationship with companies and with the founder, and it's important to understand the other side as well and really understand that kind of perspective. So I think I would say learning as much as possible. And then once you really feel like you have a good sense for like what you're trying to achieve, what the parameters are, right? Like how big your tickets are, are what you're willing to invest in, et cetera, then it's time to really generate deal flow. Um, and in order to do that, I'd say, you know, definitely look into some communities that are out there. If you just Google online, like one of the silver linings of COVID is that a lot of these communities are now virtual. They don't require any sort of geographic or local limitation. You can join online communities. You could go to pitch days 
virtual pitch days. You can talk to other co-investors. You can learn from them. You can just sit in on calls with prospective um, founders and portfolio companies and hear what other angels are asking. I think there's a lot of learning you can get that way. Um, and then you can also just follow, you know, successful angel investors on Twitter. It's a great source of very candid and raw perspectives that are always valuable. So I find that to be kind of a really nice way to um, to learn and develop a perspective. So I'd say deal flow is uh, really helpful from the community. And then the, the other thing I just really want to mention is don't underestimate your network. Um, you really it's worth doing that kind of LinkedIn search I mentioned earlier, but with a founder perspective and looking at, okay, who did you, you know, have that freshman year class with, or who did you go to high school with, who you maybe lost touch with, who's now starting an awesome business, um, get back in touch with those wonderful people. So those are some of the steps I'd consider. Um, I think the biggest thing I wanted to mention though, Theo, especially for, you know, my own anecdotal experience with female peers of mine is it's so important as an angel investor to own that label and name it and say that you're an angel investor, because especially for earlier founders, they might not feel comfortable actually asking you for investments because they don't know if that's something you're willing to do. And especially if you are generating leads out of your network, there could be some discomfort with say a former friend or current friend asking you if you're interested in investing. And I see a lot of confusion happening. So I'd say if you are somebody who has made a single angel investment, you should call yourself an angel investor. Even if you're a prospective angel investor, call yourself that. It's so important to own that label to really put yourself out there and generate amazing deal flow that you deserve and that you can add value to. So that would be those would be some of my initial thoughts. Obviously, I'm very passionate about this, so happy to kind of further discuss at any point. I can tell as you were talking, and all I could think of was, wait a minute, you should actually write about it. I think it's super helpful. It's pragmatic the way you talk about it, but it also makes sense. You you made it sound like it like you said, it's is myth busting is not something that is so far out of reach mm -hmm. for people. Mm -hmm. And I think this is super useful. I need to remember this because next time if um, I do see a panel or someone needing someone to talk about it, I, I think you will be perfect. Now that we've gotten through that part, they have how do people get you to say yes? I'm curious. Mm. <laughs> or is that like some of your secrets that you're not going to be able to tell them until you no, meet them yeah, and spend time no. with them? Um, what, what do you look for? Because I know, you know, all of us have different things that, that you know, mm -hmm. we want. Like you were talking about, you're looking for return, you're looking for the prior experience, you're looking for yeah. the team, what they do. What, what, what makes it tick? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, no, I'm, I'm very, very open about this and very much learning and so kind of excited to continue to refine this over time. I think where I'm at now, Theo, is um, what I look for at a high level is I'm generally super excited about, you know, those two areas for me that I mentioned earlier, the things that really get me up out of bed in the morning are health tech and wealth tech. I tend to invest at pre-seed and seed because I think that that's where I, with my angel ticket size, can have the most value, um, can be most helpful and really shaping the trajectory of the business. And I'm quite geographically agnostic. I tend to invest most in the UK and the US because that's where my existing network is, but I'm trying to get more involved in the Middle East and in Latin America where I have roots and I think where there's a lot of outsized opportunity. Um, and I'd say everything I do, all my investing is purpose-driven. It's just net socially positive companies that are making people's lives better in some meaningful way. So what I absolutely love to see um, are companies that are like fundamentally 
challenging the status quo, like stirring things up, trying to reposition or, or change kind of power dynamics in a way that benefits the consumer in some meaningful way. Um, I'm really excited about investing in businesses that are tackling stigmatized topics because I think that's where there's a lot of arbitrage. There's kind of like outsized opportunity and value to capture. So whether that's like in the addiction space, in the eating disorder space, in the like maternal health, especially maternal mental health space, these are all issues that we as a society are still really uncomfortable talking about. And as a result, our current systems, in my opinion, do not serve the need as much as they need to. And so I think that technology has an opportunity to serve that need because it's inherently more anonymous, scalable, accessible, quality can be insured, et cetera. So I think that's just a big part of what I'm super excited about. Um, and yeah, things that are early, I'd say I, from a founder perspective, and I ultimately am taking a bet on the founder, um, you know, in early stage investing, there's very limited traction and there's very limited data. And so I'm taking a bet on the founder, the co-founding team. I tend to prefer co-founders. I think partnership is really valuable, especially having somebody with technical background and somebody with, let's say, more of a business or domain expertise background. Ultimately, um, what I'm looking for is a human being who's authentically or human beings who are authentically connected to the mission of the company, almost like irrationally so, because building a company is so freaking painful and challenging that unless you have an irrational love or commitment to the problem, can be really freaking easy to let go and or it can be really easy to just see a lot of the challenges as roadblocks as opposed to opportunities to pivot to rethink to innovate right which is really i think the kind of mindset that's needed to make it through the whatever it's what is it called like the valley of death that unfortunately most companies have to navigate to make it out the other end um so i think that's really important to me and it's often inspired by lived experience theo but that's not a requirement for me, I just have noticed that that's a big theme in a lot of the companies that I invest in. So it's folks who either have that direct lived experience or maybe an indirect um, experience with a loved one or a close friend that's really opened their eyes to a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and then honestly, there are just a couple of things about the founder itself that are really important to me. And that is someone who's open to feedback. So I try to ask really hard questions and see how folks react to that. You know, are they leaning into the hard question, are they being candid and kind of forthright about the challenge or are they being defensive? I think it's important to me to see somebody who's really humble and open to feedback, but of course has that conviction about what's possible. Um, and somebody who also I'd say is um, really willing to challenge their own assumptions about what needs to get done. I think often the business model in pre-seed is gonna iterate many times over as you know much better than me before it sticks. So somebody who's willing to kind of challenge it um, and rethink it constantly. And then I think the last thing is um, looking for founders who are really able to and willing to scale themselves. You know, I think there are a lot of amazing independent contributors out there. Um, and I think get moving from an independent contributor, someone who's like really great at getting shit done to somebody who's really great at building a vision and bringing a team along is very different. So thinking about that like who's really willing to kind of i don't know if you've ever read molly graham's blog and first rounder first round capitals blog it's amazing um but it's about giving away your legos and as you scale the importance of really giving away parts of what you're working on to enable yourself and other people to grow and i think that's a really important thing um in those early days so i think those are some of the very candid things that i look at and that i would say are pretty consistent across my portfolio
amazing. I don't think I've heard people talk about that last part as much as you did. You know, we, we talk about the founder's vision, um, their passion, commitment to the cause and, you know, being open to, to changes and suggestions, but I don't normally hear people talk about, you know, being able to move from someone who can build things to someone who can build a team and lead people and, and bring it forth. Um, especially when you're in early stage, you are very much into everything. You try to do everything yourself. I think it's hard to pull yourself out and have a longer vision. Um, I, I like your perspective. Switching gear a little bit, let's talk about um, a founder, a fairly famous one, who has been making the news lately, Adam Newman, um, and talk about we, we talk a lot about, you know, have, uh, how do you say it? Second chances, third chances, uh, how uneven the space would have been. So, um, A16Z just wrote its largest individual check ever, 350 million to flow. And it's a new idea that Newman had around residential real estate companies focused on rentals that startup is valued at over $1 billion even before it starts. That was surprising. Um, and what is also surprising is this is not his first comeback story. Actually, a few months ago in May, A16Z also gave $70 million for Newman's other startup. is a blockchain-based startup, Carbon Credit platform, which two months after they got funded, they announced that they're going to go on a permanent pause. Now, knowing the journey, as many of us do and have heard and read about in recent years, um, of how his first company, WeWork, was run and where it is right now, knowing how difficult it is for many, many founders to even get a foot at the door, let alone get funded the first million and seeing how many, many million and billions he has gotten, as well as others, right? It feels like a slap in the face, an insult to those who have great ideas, great those who are passionate about what they're building, those who want to change the world, and yet mm. couldn't even get started. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, because I know in, in our space, there's a lot of us who are very frustrated and, and seeing um what what is going on are, are we are we focusing on the right things this is not the first time it happened obviously um are we willing to fund the right ideas are we even funding the right things are we backing the right founders can we even change the course of how the whole ecosystem is moving mm, great question thank you so much for bringing this up yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, Theo, and I think that the frustration I hold above all else is that I think all too many founders, prospective founders, don't get that first chance, you know, as you were saying. And I think that's really where my frustration lies is that ultimately we all know, you know, both anecdotally and through the data that um, all, all too many founders are really not making it to that first chance, that the investor ecosystem is already incredibly inequitable to begin with. You know, talent, I really firmly believe talent is equally distributed, but opportunity isn't. And I think that's something you see really, really acutely in the investing ecosystem when you look at the data about like where the money is flowing. Um, and so I think that's that's really where I start 
is that there are these amazing founders, amazing business ideas that really aren't seeing the light of day because of a range of structural and kind of cultural challenges in the um, investing ecosystem. I think that separately, I personally, in general, I'm a huge believer in second chances. I think that everyone deserves a second chance. I think we as humans have the opportunity to evolve, to better ourselves, to learn from the past. It's part of my you know, commitment and focus to mental health um, and knowing ourselves better and really kind of seeking um, greater reflection and clarity on ourselves. We have the opportunity to evolve and improve. Um, and so that is definitely an opinion I still hold. That being said, I think part of why the Adam Newman story in general stings, especially um, for probably many of us, is just because, you know, that is a reality that we're all seeing um, in this backdrop of inequity in fundraising. And so I think that's really the frustration is that the inequity that we're seeing in those first chances, right, and who's getting the first chance is translating into who's getting the second chance and the third chance. And when you've got a situation like Adam Newman that's very visible and also of a huge magnitude, as you were saying, that stings especially strongly because in my opinion, all it does is remind us that like we really need to fix the problem upstream first. And I'm an optimistic person. I really believe that that is possible. I think we've made marginal improvements, like you know, tiny, tiny incremental improvements, but I really believe that that's something that we can improve. And so I'm hopeful that when you and I have this conversation a decade from now, which I hope we will, um, the data will look different. The anecdotal stories that are top of mind for us will look different. But that's my perspective. I like your optimism. I remember that was one of the things you struck me with when when we talked last time um, around. So with carrying that forward, um, if you were to have a wish list, I know what I would love to see change. Um, what is it that you would want more people to work on? You have a platform that you know mm. you reach out to people. You have an amazing network. You have amazing ideas. So what would you tell people who are talking to you or listening? Well, what would you want them to focus on? In terms of business ideas to build or? Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. awesome. Oh, yes, I love this question. Um, I'd say, yeah, I'd, I'll bring back some of the points I made earlier about the stigmatized areas that I think are still very under um, addressed. So that includes things like addiction of all kinds, including alcohol use disorder, which many of us have, and that is uh, actually one of the most problematic and I think negatively impactful human behaviors that we have on the planet. Um, the second thing is, you know, this is going to sound incredibly counterintuitive, but I'm perhaps again as an optimist, loneliness is a real epidemic that we are facing as a society that we're seeing even more acutely with you know, future generations, generations that are being brought up today, whether that's Gen Z, Gen Alpha, amazing name, by the way. Um, and so I think that I'm really curious to understand how can we leverage technology, but also as we were building towards a metaverse to actually support with loneliness, bridging the gap in connection that I think a lot of us have disconnected from, kind of lost sight of in the past decade or so with the onslaught of different social media apps and different kind of technology that's become available to us. I think in many ways, our lives are generally speaking, I think for those of us who have digital access and who have the means, our lives are more convenient than ever, but also most more disconnected and lonely than ever. And I'm kind of curious to understand how um, 
you know, I think the perpetrator of this can actually be the medicine and, and how businesses can be built around that. The other thing I'll say, and this is, you know, one of the things that gets me really out of bed in the morning, I'm very excited about to my point about wealth tech is like, let's build more businesses that bring more underrepresented groups into investing, whether that's more traditional retail investing or whether that's crypto. But for example, today, eight to 18% of investors in crypto are women, eight to 18. So best case scenario, one in five people investing in crypto, one in five of the people who honestly generated wealth in the past half decade as certain crypto assets soared in value are women. And so if we're really looking ahead and believe this could be the next wealth building engine for many of us, the fact that women are so underrepresented um, and women as a proxy for underrepresented groups in general, are so underrepresented in crypto to me is just unacceptable. Like history is repeating itself. Why are we creating another paradigm that fundamentally has the exact same power dynamics as what we've experienced? So I'm super excited about companies that are, um, or just folks who are really trying to challenge that. So for example, I've invested in a fund called Spice Capital that is female founded, focusing in crypto and she has a strong equity lens. So that's one way that I'm trying to do work on this topic without necessarily backing a business solving it. It's just a way to, I would say, shift the dynamics in, in the ecosystem. Your point earlier about loneliness, it reminds me of a book. Um, I forgot the exact title, but it's something around um, being alone together. And, and I'll have to find it. It, it was striking in a way. I read it a couple of years ago. You know how when you get together with friends sometimes or, or with partners, you go out, you, you're sitting in a coffee shop, you're face to face with each other. You ended up both browsing on your phone mm. on the news. Mm -hmm. and, and that book perfectly described those moments where you are physically sharing the space together and yet you are not really connected on a higher level it, it it's like how sometimes i observe my kids when they have play dates you know how when we were younger we have play dates you actually play together <laughs> and now the kids when they have play dates with their friends they're all sitting in silence mm. and you take a look at them because they each one of them have their own ipad they're all either playing a game together virtually while sitting next to each other or worse they are playing different games they just happen to be yeah. sitting together I, I think this whole notion of I, I love technology don't don't get me wrong um we use it all the time right this is how you and I connect in the first place and this is how we're chatting right now but I feel like we need to somehow find our way back to find that balance where we can still have human connection and not just relying on us being in the screen, it, there is a different kind of connection. I think it's a deeper emotional mm -hmm. connection that is healthier than creating a completely virtual self. I don't know. It's just perhaps it's me getting older. <laughs> no, totally. I think that's a really great point. And I think the solution doesn't necessarily need to be existing in a virtual world together, but perhaps it's how can technology facilitate thoughtful conversation? How can it facilitate an understanding of who to connect with you have shared interests with. I, I wonder how it can be used as a catalyst and a facilitator um, and a prompt, uh, in addition to, I'm sure, you know, virtual spaces, et cetera. But that, I think there's a whole spectrum of possibility as opposed to just dismissing it entirely, which I think is healthy to do from time to time. But rather than, I think, 
shying away from the eventuality of the metaverse. I wonder how we can actually turn towards it, befriend it, think about how can we leverage it to create an even better existence, you know, and, and a stronger sense of connection uh, and really design that with intention. Because I think at the beginning of, let's say, the internet as a proxy, um, that wasn't something we were solving for necessarily. I think we thought, oh yeah, we'll all be more connected at this kind of very high and superficial level, but we didn't have as much of a kind of a conscious um, plan or roadmap mm -hmm. for how to do that in a more meaningful way. Agree, agree, agree. Um, this is where I am hopeful about the next generation, mm -hmm. right? People who have seen how it works now and how they have a vision to make it better, to make it different instead of repeating what we did before. So before I let you go, um, moving to, to, to new space, you've stepped into something that's, you know, I would say fairly male dominated space. You moved to a new country, you've moved around. None of that is, is, is new for you. Yet you do make it seem so effortless. I don't know how you do that. Um, secrets? You, you care to share any secrets? Like how, how, because we talk a lot about um, being a digital nomad, right? Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about great resonation, although I think that was like half a year ago. Now we're doing something else. But <laughs> technology has enabled us to move yeah. around. Technology mm -hmm. has enabled us to step into new environments, be it a new physical environment or be it a new space, a new industry that was not there before that allow us to explore. How do we continue to take that? What are some of, what are some of your ways of being able to, to basically navigate your life the way you have been and, and challenging yourself in different areas? Thank you Theo, for that question. Um, I think for me, my biggest, I'd say, strategy has been keeping a strong relationship with myself. So I think that to clarify what I mean is really um, self-belief is my secret, which is um, cultivating a relationship with myself and with my own um, sense of self-worth. And what I mean by that is like very practically, I put myself first in my own life. And that means that I'm less influenced by what other people might say about me, worrying about what other people might say about me, reading into other people's judgments. Like I have clarity within myself of my own worth and what I want, what I'm deserving of. And I kind of focus there as a starting point. That might sound incredibly um, odd, but that really is my truth. And I think as an example, when I say putting myself first view, I mean like in the morning when I wake up, I don't check my phone. I intentionally give myself like at least half an hour of meditation, of journaling, of like really thoughtful intention um, around, you know, what do I want to do with this day? What do I want to do with this week, with this month? Reflecting on all of the amazing things that I have experienced um, and really leaning into the challenges and embracing them. So I think that my first point would be self-belief. I think that we, you know, to our earlier point about connection and disconnection, Theo, like we're very disconnected with each other, but I think we're actually even more so disconnected with ourselves potentially um in the sense that there's so much distraction available to us these days that we forget to check in with ourselves um and how we feel what's serving us what feels aligned for us etc 
The second thing I'll say is um, I've really trained my mind to embrace challenge. And what I mean by that is I've trained my mind to have a, um, a relentlessly optimistic outlook where I really believe that if you ask yourself and see the world as always happening for your best interest, even when shit really hits the fan, <laughs> asking the question, why is this happening for me as opposed to why is this happening to me? is can be so instructive because then when for example you get rejected like an opportunity falls through that person ghosts you you really start to believe well you know what rejection is protection like this really was because that wasn't the right opportunity and it opened the door for something else so i think having that optimistic mindset has helped me remain resilient theo as i've navigated constantly new waters and i've been the new kid on the block i think many times over and I've been trying to figure out how to kind of gain footing in different spaces. So I think that self-belief, that optimistic mindset, kind of constantly leaning into the challenge and trying to understand how to embrace the change as opposed to avoiding it has been, been really, really important. And then I'll say the last thing is I really see change as um, a privilege. Like if you can, if you get to change your something about your life, let's say you get to change your career, you get to change something you're focused on, you get to change your job, like that's a new start. That's like an amazing opportunity and a real privilege. And I think perhaps connected to the optimistic mindset I mentioned earlier, but that has really helped me lean into like, wow, like how can I soak all the goodness out of this? Um, and when shit hits the fan, take, you know, take what I have to learn from it, but then kind of continue to move on and continue to grow. So I think that those would be my strategies as of right now um, for really navigating a lot of ambiguity in my career, kind of constantly evolving. And I'd say the last thing is having crystal clarity on like, what's your guiding lights and what's your North Star for the impact you want to have in your life. For me, it's helping people um, really strengthen their own mental health at scale. And what I mean by that is really helping people develop a stronger relationship with themselves and as a result, gain greater clarity fulfillment purpose in their lives like that's what i want to do with my life overall and so anything that gets me there is a good use of my time and i think that gives me some peace when there are turbulent waters along the way that is the ultimate 2022 survival guide <laughs> It is, it is, it is amazing though. Um, you're an incredible human being. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I don't have, I don't, I don't real, I, I rarely meet people like you and it's been an honor. Thank you so much for reaching out in the very beginning. Um, I think it was last half a year ago, but it's, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, for, those who have yet to have the privilege to meet you and would like to learn more about you, where can they find you? Ooh, good question. Um, I'd say send me a message on LinkedIn. Um, my full name there, and I'm very responsive to my direct messages in all capacities, even if, um, yeah, it takes me a little bit longer than I would have liked. I will get back to you and would be so honored to, to hear kind of your perspective on this conversation. Any of your ideas too, would love to learn from you. And so I think that's probably the best place for now. And Theo, I have to say the honor has been all mine. It's been such a pleasure. This conversation has flown by and hopefully one day I'll get to interview you and hear more about your incredible journey and wisdom. Well, you 
we I know that we will run into each other. So I look forward to that next conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Maya. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.